This month is the 454th anniversary of a significant event from the Unitarian half of our Unitarian Universalist heritage. In 1568, John Sigismund Zapolia of Hungary, history's only Unitarian king, passed the Edict of Torda, a landmark act of religious tolerance and freedom of conscience. Sigismund was born in 1540, a little more than two decades after Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, Germany. So this general time period that we're going to be talking about here at the top of the sermon is the, the early decades of the Protestant Reformation, a time of immense religious upheaval. In 1568, at a time when many ruling authorities were persecuting, even executing, religious dissenters, Sigismund used his power to expand freedom of religion within his sphere of influence. He set congregations free. Congregations hire a preacher whose teacher you approve of instead of having a minister chosen for them. He set ministers free. Preach based on your best sense of the truth instead of having predetermined sermon content or external limitations placed upon them. He set individuals free to choose the religion they prefer. This is what we sometimes talk about, the freedom of the pulpit and the freedom of the pew. In the words of the edict, no one shall be reviled for their religion by anyone. These basic religious liberties, they may seem like it's just common sense today. But let me give you a point of comparison of how high the stakes often were at this time for you know, getting rid of religious difference. In 1531, during this period in between Luther's theses in 1517, which launched the Protestant Reformation, to the Edict of Torda in 1568. So we're in between these two times in 1531. At that time, another of our Unitarian forebears, Michael Servetus, published a book with the not very subtle title, On the Errors of the Trinity. It was pretty clear from the title what it was about, On the Errors of the Trinity. When John Calvin, another one of those leading uh, Protestant reformers, so you had Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others leading the Protestant Reformation. When John Calvin read Servetus's book, one option would have been to choose the path that Sigismund was to help blaze a few decades later of religious toleration, of saying, wow, Servetus, like, I really disagree with that, but let's, let's agree to disagree or let's talk about it. Instead, Calvin had Servetus burned at the stake for the so-called crime of heresy. Keep in mind that that word heretic, as many of you know, it simply means to choose. You're a heretic. It just means you're a chooser. You're choosing for yourself instead of just believing what some religious authority tells you to believe. For Servetus, it wasn't actually that he was so opposed to the Trinity. It was that he read the Bible for himself in the original languages and noticed that the Trinity really wasn't there. So the good news of on the errors of the Trinity for him was that the Trinity was optional. And for him, that was tremendous good news for bringing Christian Jews and Muslims together. He's like, we don't have to fight about the Trinity. That can just be an optional belief, one among many possibilities. You can actually be a Trinitarian, Unitarian, Universalist, if you like, within our big tent. 
the interfaith activist uh, Ibu Patel sometimes talks about pluralism as uh, there are options for dealing with religious difference can be bubble, barrier, bomb, or bridge. We can try to build a bubble around ourselves to separate ourselves and insulate ourselves from religious difference. We can build barriers to do that. Or we can throw bombs and try to get rid of the religious others, or we can build bridges to learn more about one another, which doesn't mean we have to become the same, but bridges over differences. Now, to be fair, I should add that the Edict of Torda was by no means the sort of full-throated celebration of religious pluralism that we might hope for from uh, desire for today. With the Edict of Torda, tolerance was explicitly extended only to four religious groups, all Christian, Lutherans, Calvinists, Catholics, and Unitarians. Tolerance is actually today often considered to be kind of a dirty word in multi-faith circles. Oh, you're just tolerating me versus celebrating difference or seeing what I might be able to learn from difference in a humble way. But for the mid-1500s, only a few decades into the scientific revolution, constructing a societal big tent large enough to include even those four flavors of the Christian tradition was dramatic progress. In contrast, the standard practice in many other places at that time was to just entrench one dominant state-sponsored form of religion that might benefit from tax dollars or from the royalty um, giving it money and actively discriminate or oppress other religions. To finish telling this part of the story, I need to bring in one other person from our history, Francis David. David was the court preacher for the Unitarian king Sigismund. David both converted Sigismund to Unitarianism, and he was the one that wrote the Edict of Torda. Tragically, three years after he passed the edict, King Sigismund was killed in a hunting accident at the young age of 30. So it's interesting to imagine what could have happened if he had lived longer. His successor, Stephen Bathory, as King of Hungary, was a theologically conservative Catholic and gives us one among many historical examples of how much it can matter who is in charge. Whereas Sigismund was a religious progressive, open to religion evolving and changing based on new insights and experiences and perspectives, the new king sought to keep religion conformed to some alleged ideal of the past. The new king not only removed all Unitarians from positions of power, but also had Francis David convicted on two charges, generally promoting innovations in religion and specifically preaching that Christians should be less worshiping Jesus and more following the ethics that Jesus showed us. David was imprisoned and died in prison that same year at the age of either 58 or 59, we're not sure. As with Servetus before him, David is a martyr for Unitarianism, freedom of conscience, and religious liberty. And I like to often take this some Sunday in January to remember this historic piece of our legacy about religious difference and freedom of religion and freedom of conscience, and then think about some parallels to today. So, so far we've considered a few case studies from the 1500s for how to approach religious pluralism. On the one end of the spectrum was that theocratic, 
supremacist approach of Stephen Bathory and John Calvin, in which there's room for only one group's idea of what counts as the alleged one true religion. On the other end of the spectrum is Sigismund, Servetus, David, who each in various ways tried to enlarge the tent to make room for an increasing variety of religious diversity. And I hope you can see that this anniversary of the Edict of Torda is an auspicious time to reflect on the state of religion today. As part of my own reflections, I've been reading a book published recently by Skinner House Books. That's our, one of our own imprints with the Unitarian Universalist Association. It's titled Faith on Trial, Religion and the Law in the United States. It's written by my colleague, the Reverend Mark Caggiano, who was a lawyer prior to becoming a UU minister. And if there's any weakness to the book, it still shows a little bit of his familiarity as a lawyer. I think it could be slightly more accessible, but it, it's still quite accessible. He also serves our congregation as the UU minister of Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts. So if we had to pick one short text that had a, has a similar impact today as the Edict of Torda did in its own day in Hungary, it would probably be the first 16 words of the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, as it's typically um, talked about. The Establishment Clause, the first part, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, that's intended to prevent what happened in Calvin's Geneva or Bathory's Hungary from happening in the U.S. We're not a theocracy. We don't kill or imprison people for having the wrong religious beliefs, or at least we don't anymore, at least U.S. citizens. I know all this is complicated. There are, though, examples of people being imprisoned at the state level for violating blasphemy laws in this country as late as 1838. The last person that happened to was named Abner Neeland. He was actually a universalist, part of our UU heritage. He was a universalist turned atheist, and he was imprisoned at Massachusetts, in Massachusetts, of all places, for blasphemy. He served 60 days in prison for being a heretic. This is in 1838. Uh, in a future sermon, I'll, I'll tell you that story in more detail. For now, suffice it to say, it is a good thing we have an establishment clause uh, in the First Amendment. The U.S. government is prohibited from establishing an official state-sponsored religion that is publicly funded through taxpayer dollars or from favoring one religion over another. At least that's the theory. In, in my mind, and in a lot of progressive uh, law scholars' minds, the Supreme Court is a bit confused on that at the moment, but I'll get to that uh, later. The free exercise clause, that Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion, that prevents the government from interfering in religious beliefs and practices to the greatest extent possible. You know, the government is not here today. They're not telling me what I can preach, what you can believe. It's easier, however, to give people freedom of religious belief than it is to give people freedom of religious action. For instance, what if I proclaim that it is my sincere religious belief that I should get one free flight per year anywhere in the world? I sincerely believe that with my whole heart, mind, body, and spirit. I think that's what God wants for me. What if I... What if I said that was my free, or what if I said my sincere religious belief is that I should be able to drive over to the Pentagon later and just walk around and do whatever I want? 
I can believe those things with my whole heart, mind, body, spirit, whatever, as fervently as I want, but I suspect I would run into some problems if I tried to act on those beliefs, if they were actually my sincere beliefs. So there's a lot to say about the interplay of religion and the law. For our purposes, I'm going to give you five very quick case studies. And as we move through them, I want to invite you to kind of play along at home. If you were a Supreme Court justice, how would you vote on these five cases? on the boundaries and limits of religious liberty. How do we do better here in the 21st century than some um, people, some humans did in the 16th century without going too far? Because as the saying goes, there's a thin line between being set free and being cast adrift. So how do we negotiate that? For our first example, snake handling. Let's talk about it. Unlike my joking examples earlier, there are citizens in this country who do sincerely believe that the only way they can fully practice their religion is by handling snakes and by drinking poison, not wanting to die, but trusting that they'll be okay anyway. This conviction comes directly from the Bible. Mark 16, 17 to 18 says, And these signs will accompany those who believe. By using my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes in their hands. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. If you're interested in reading more about that, I highly recommend the book Salvation on Sand Mountains, a really powerful explanation, exploration of a journalist from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution uh, interviewing and learning more about a snake-handling congregation. So handling poisonous snakes, even during a religious service, that's illegal in some states today, such as Kentucky and Georgia, and legal in other states, such as West Virginia. The American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, has generally been on the side of the snake handlers. That the risk of harming oneself and even dying, which has happened numerous times to people who have handled snakes and on drunk poison in religious services, that is not a sufficient reason, according to the ACLU, to restrict adults from practicing their First Amendment rights to the freedom of religion. This perspective is a classical liberal view that your right to swing your fist, my right to swing my fist, ends when it hits your face. You can swing your fist all day long, but if it hits me, we have a problem. In this analogy, you are free to risk punching your own face, so to speak, by choosing to handle snakes or drink poison, as long as you aren't forcing others to do likewise. That being said, the argument could be made that society has a compelling reason to stop dangerous activity, for, to protect you from yourself, or to maybe protect you from when you do it, you may encourage others to do likewise. So that's where some of the regulations around snake handling have come from. Because if we extend this trajectory one step further, we reach the territory of religious suicide cults, Jim Jones's People Temple, the Heaven's Gate uh, cult under Marshall Applewhite that developed around the Haley Bop Comet. Some of you may remember that about 20 years ago. At least to me, those are clear instances where many of us would likely wish society could have intervened to stop people from practicing what in that moment may have felt like their sincere religious belief and often worry about some coercion being involved. So what do you think? 
How far should individuals be able to go in risking even fatal harm to themselves if it involves an allegedly sincere religious belief? Here's a second case. What about indigenous people who have a sincere religious belief that using the psychoactive plant peyote is an essential part of their religious practice? In 1990, the Supreme Court ruled in Employment Division Department of Human Resources of Oregon versus Smith that someone could be fired for using peyote and denied state unemployment benefits after being fired, even though that drug was used only in a traditional religious ritual and as a core essential part of traditional indigenous religious practices in that area. This is an interesting case since today, um, three decades later, we're really seeing a sea change in the attitudes of the wider society toward more openly embracing psychedelics. So this case might well be decided differently today for a variety of reasons, including a growing deference among Supreme Court justices for religious liberty arguments. But let me turn up the heat here for a moment before we move on. One could also make the argument that for many indigenous people, the land, like the land that the, our UUCL buildings and grands are on, that we do land acknowledgments occasionally for and say, you know, we acknowledge this is the traditional ancestral land of the Piscataway people. For indigenous people, the land on which this country sits, that is an inextricable part of their religious um, practice and especially sacred lands that have been developed on, what do we, do about that. To date, the courts have not found arguments persuasive arguing that the sacredness of land from an indigenous perspective should mean it should be ceded back to indigenous peoples. Do you agree? If an indigenous group sincerely believes that their religion requires significant areas of land to be given back to them, transferred back to indigenous control, where do we draw the line between the free exercise of religion and the greater needs of everyone in society? Here's a third example, polygamy. As with snake handling, polygamy is another controversial religious practice that has very strong biblical support. In the opening verses of 1 Kings 11, we read Solomon had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. That is only one in the most kind of extreme example of many religious patriarchs in the Bible who had multiple wives. Nevertheless, U.S. history is filled with examples of laws against bigamy and against plural marriage that were primarily about discriminating against Mormons. What do you think? Is this a case where consenting adults should be able to practice whatever their religion tells them? Or is there a compelling societal interest to stop them? Is this another area where a growing interest in polyamory might eventually lead to a shift? Turning to our fourth example, this one might be the most highly charged today. Surveys have found that approximately 10% of U.S. citizens believe that getting a COVID-19 vaccine conflicts with their sincere religious beliefs. What do you think? How do we balance claims about sincere religious beliefs with the needs of public health? My fifth and final example, since we've been focusing more on the free exercise clause, let's turn to the establishment clause. Did any of you see the documentary that came out just a few years ago titled Hail Satan? It's only about 90 minutes and really worth watching. It's currently streaming on both Hulu and Canopy. Um, 
brief public service announcement that both Canopy and Hoopla are, avail are streaming services that are free to you in this area with just a library card through Frederick County Public Library. So check those out if you aren't already. This documentary, Hail Satan, follows a group called the Satanic Temple who petitions public spaces that only have Christian symbols in them, sometimes a cross, often like a uh, Ten Commandments uh, statue, sometimes with a cross carved, carved on that. They say, if you have that, you should also include our statue of Baphomet, and we'll pay for it uh, and give it to you. The statue of Baphomet is an eight-and-a-half-foot-tall statue of a goat-headed humanoid figure with a very large pentagram. Their argument is that public spaces should either have no religious symbols or be open to a wide variety of religious symbols, including satanic symbols. What do you think? Should we have a crowded public square with symbols from all the religions and or a naked public square? Part of why I've taken the time to lay out these case studies is to pique your interest in the current state of religion and the law in this country today and some potentially seismic, seismic shifts that we're already starting to feel in recent years and that may get louder and stronger soon, including this June as we get new Supreme Court rulings. During the Warren Court, so the early 1950s through the end of the 1960s, the trend in most Supreme Court cases involving religion and the law was about protecting the minority religions and dissenting uh, practitioners. Today, in comparison, about two decades into the Roberts Court since 2005, there's been a growing number of religious cases that favor the currently dominant religion in the U.S. of Christianity, particularly the theologically conservative interpretations of the Christian tradition. To quote Dr. Lee Epstein, a distinguished political science professor at Washington University, just as the current majority of Supreme Court justices have weaponized free speech in the First Amendment in service of business and conservative interests, the Supreme Court is now using the religion clauses in the First Amendment to privilege mostly mainstream religious organizations which many of them personally practice. At this point, I'm tempted to go into detail about the various recent cases on religion and law, but I will not do that, not for the least of which reasons that we did that pretty extensively last week, last year on the anniversary of the Edict of Torda. That sermon is in our sermon archive. Yesterday was also, I'm aware, the 49th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, and there are competing religious values at um, going at the moment in our society about the future of reproductive justice in this country. I've also addressed that in previous sermons and our you know, strong UU tradition of supporting a woman's right to choose. We'll talk about that again, I'm sure, in the near future, perhaps on the 50th anniversary of Roe. For now, the overall point is to be aware of the tendency at the moment of using the First Amendment to privilege the majority and groups currently in power instead of using the First Amendment to protect the minority and historically oppressed groups. And in general, if I could emphasize just one point here at the end of the sermon that the Supreme Court is arguably getting wrong in the opinion of most progressive law scholars, it is a tragic and dangerous misreading of the Constitution to try to enforce one group's religious bigotry on the others in the public square in the name of religious liberty. That is to begin down the path toward the theocratic rule of Calvin and Bathory and others that our history warns us to defend against repetition.
As with swinging your fist, your right to do so ends when it hits my face, individuals and groups must make public accommodation when interacting with the general public. These same arguments being made that, you know, uh, that evangelical Christians should be able to discriminate against lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people in public and in businesses. It's the exact same arguments that were made to discriminate against women, to discriminate against um, African Americans and other racial minorities in this country. It was wrong then, it's wrong now. For now, as we consider how we individually and collectively consider these complex issues of religion and the law, it can be helpful to remember that we do always have the most control over how we choose to be religious. In that spirit, our musical response is words written by Theodore Parker, one of our 19th century Unitarian forebears, about one of the ways we seek to be religious as you use, in an inclusive way, casting as big a tent as possible as Sigismund, as Servetus, and David, and others did before us. He wrote, be ours a religion which, like sunshine, goes everywhere to benefit everyone. Its temple, all space not just one place, its shrine every good heart, its creed wherever truth is found, its ritual works of love. <laughs>